Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Remind podcast. My name's David Masterton, and I'm joined with the Ashley. With the Ashley. <laughs> the Ashley. The Ashley. Let's try that again with Dr. Ashley Morland, also known on this podcast as the Ashley. So, welcome, the Ashley. How are you feeling today? Let's start again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Remind Podcast. My name's David Marston, and I'm joined with Dr. Ashley Morland. If you'd heard my first intro just before this, which we've cut out, I also referred to her as The Ashley, which I won't do again. Oops, sorry, there I go again, Ash. <laughs> How are you feeling? Yeah, good. Glad to be here. Always good to start the session with a bit of a laugh. Yes, I don't know where I was going with the Ashley. I was going to say maybe it was like the wonderful and instead I just probably put the Ashley in there. Yeah. So a um, bit of an interesting show today. The title is going to have a number in it, 10. Yeah. And we're going to be talking about the 10 signs of a wounded inner child. Yes, yes. I think the, the best place to start is probably thinking about what is a wounded inner child. Some people mm. who have followed along our podcast for a long time might be familiar with it. Other people might have heard the phrase elsewhere. Um, I know the holistic psychologist does talk a lot about the inner child and, you know, it's something that's been referred to pretty widely. And it's a concept that comes from various psychological or therapeutic frameworks. And what it's really talking about is that our early life experiences, particularly those in childhood and I would even go as far as to say from a brain development perspective, the first zero to seven years, mm. those early life experiences can have a lasting impact on our emotional well-being, on our behavior, on our relational um, function or dysfunction. And the inner child really represents the childlike aspect of our psyche. And so from a mental perspective, mental meaning relating to the mind, it's the part of the mind that retains the memories, but more important than the memories is the emotions mm. that are attached to the experiences from those early years. So when we think about trauma, um, trauma, a lot of people think just the really obvious traumas like abuse or neglect or really significant traumas, we call them um, big T traumas, but right. the inner child stuff is really more related to the little T traumas, which are the, the moments in time where maybe as a young child you felt scared or you felt confused or mm. you felt nervous or worried or sad. And in those moments, you needed something. You needed someone to come and pick you up and hug you. Maybe you needed someone to come and defend you. Maybe you needed someone to tell you that you were going to be okay or even just explain the situation to you and that need wasn't met for whatever reason. Mm. That's really what we're talking about here because those early life experiences absolutely influence the development of our brain and our mind that then we retain and hold on to in our adult lives. So when we see yeah. these patterns start to play out in adulthood, it can be really helpful to go and start to query and question, well, what in a child 
representation is playing out right now because if we can meet the inner child's wound and reintegrate that child into the adult version of us, then we start to see a lot more healthy function playing out in our lives. Mm. Well, you raise a lot of good points there because when we sort of start off, there's actually a a couple of things I want to dive into actually. The first thing is when we start experiencing or learning something, the first responses that we get or the first interactions that we get or the first feedback that we get is pretty profound. Mm. So if you're learning how to ride a skateboard, the first thing is not to fall over. And if you fall over, then what you're trying to do is to figure out ways not to not to do that. But like, so when we're doing all of this learning as we're a child, we're reacting to those learnings, not on a overall basis of the different feedback or the different things. We're usually taking like the first interaction and we're adjusting from that first interaction onwards. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of, I think, a really big thing at the start. So when people sort of say healing the inner child, it's because when you have that, it's generally the first interaction. Yeah, and we in, call in that, therapeutically, thing. we call that the initial sensitizing event. So the initial sensitizing event is kind of the first time where you learned that mm. you couldn't trust someone if you were crying or you, you know, the first time something happens, I mean, the first sign of a wounded inner child we were going to speak about today is, is a fear of abandonment. If we have a persistent fear of being abandoned or being rejected, whether that's in relationships or in a workplace setting or whatever the context is, quite often we can pinpoint that back to some early life experiences where we had a need an emotional need or a, or a nurturing need that wasn't met. And so if we were rejected, if we were abandoned, our mind starts to predict in those mm. moments where we have a need that we are going to be abandoned. And sometimes because of the familiarity of that, we can actually set that up to happen. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, because it, it's while you don't like it, it's still familiar. Yes, and we actually get a dopamine hit out of predicting correctly. So if we have a core Uh, abandonment wound, then we can set things up so that we get the hit of dopamine because we've accurately predicted that someone's going to abandon us. Yay, I win! Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the first part out of all that that I'm thinking as you're talking about this is our first experiences are generally going to be like like this expression goes, you can never redo a first impression. Mm. And that goes for who you are and what's what's going on. The second thing that sort of came to mind is when we have these first impressions and we adapt to these first impressions, we then go into the subconscious programming, which we're kind of doing things without knowing it. So we have this sort of reaction from these first things. And so if you didn't have a terrible childhood like myself, you then go back and go, what would I have a fear of abandonment? I had a, a mum who was home full time. I was picked up and dropped off from school and I had blah, 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 blah. So now you're logically sort of fighting against yourself. Yeah. Um, and then um, when you expand that out, you've got the one thing that I know you teach in Rise and Thrive is that the nervous system does not operate in time or space. 
Now, this blew my mind. I probably said well, it in. Well, the nervous system does, but the mind doesn't. Okay, so wherever it's wherever it's held, this program that started when you were maybe three, four, five, six, seven, wherever it was, it doesn't grow up like your brain grows up. It doesn't mature like your brain matures. Yeah. And so I kind of see it in these three steps. You've got the initial reaction, which could have happened. You then plug it into your sub subconscious. You don't believe you have it because it's just sitting in the background. You're not actively looking for it. And then you realize, well, as I've grown up, I've matured. Maybe my ADHD slowed down a bit. Maybe I've become a bit more wiser. Maybe I don't get so competitive. The last one, I still am, still am very competitive, so I haven't grown out of that yet. Um but then you realize that these these triggers don't go through that same thing or that those those wounds. So it's a very active process to go and heal the inner child. Yes. Because it's not so something that it should have just happened like naturally it should have happened the way I've grown up, matured, the chemicals in the brain slow down or whatever it is that sort of mellows me out a bit more. Those same things do not happen to the inner child. So you actually have to go back. It's still exactly the same spot where it was at the start while the rest of you is matured. Yeah. It's almost like we segment and there's lots, there's actually entire therapeutic approaches or modalities that are specifically parts oriented. And so if you imagine um, disintegration, well, what's disintegration? It's breaking apart. Yeah. And so there's therapeutic modalities that are entirely parts focused. So we can deal with the part of us. And, and, you know, maybe you can relate to this in your daily life. Like there's the part of you who knows that you really want to get up and go to the gym. But then there's another part of you that goes, oh, do I have to? The bed's, the bed's really warm. I don't yeah. like the equipment. Exactly. I, you know, I don't like the feeling of the chest really bad. Yeah. When you do that first thing of the cardio, even though, yeah. you know, you sort of break through it and then you'll be fine. Yeah. And so we can, most of us can relate to this parts thing, mm. right? And so the, we understand that the word disintegrate means to break apart. And in our early life, if we have early life experiences where we learn that there is a part of us that is a threat to our connection to our caregivers or that is considered bad or naughty or wrong, um, then we can disconnect or disintegrate that part. And so we kind of almost like shut it off completely. We will shut down that part of us. But that part of us doesn't stop existing. It's mm. still it's still there. But the thing that I find amazing about this is in our adulthood, when we start initiating this healing journey, it's actually about turning towards those parts that have been disintegrated and nurturing them back into reintegration. And so this journey of wholeness is that the fact is we've been whole the whole time. It's just that there's these parts of us that were disintegrated in those early life experiences that we felt like we had to chop off to be more acceptable. We had to chop off to fit the mold that we needed to fit or to Mm. survive in a family dynamic or survive in a school system or survive in a social dynamic. And we might have learned that, I mean, for me personally, I was nicknamed the foghorn. (laughs) And anyone who's experienced (laughs) the flatlining of my mic 
in any of this can probably yeah. go, oh, yeah, Ash, wow. It's it's clipped a couple of times over these last 37 episodes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's, this is an ongoing journey for me too. And, and so it's that reintegration. It's unbecoming everything that you had to become to survive your past experiences and your environment. Mm. And as you unbecome all of that and reintegrate those parts of you, you then experience the fullness of who you are and you can show up authentically. You can show up vulnerably. You can Mm. have the space and the capacity to have close nurturing intimate relationships and by intimacy I'm not just talking about sex I'm talking about emotional intimacy and closeness and trust so the the relevant thing about that is our number two sign of a wounded in a wounded inner child is difficulty trusting others Mm. so if there's a difficulty trusting others that might be due to betrayal broken promises during childhood, any time where your trust may have been broken and you learned at a young age that you couldn't trust others. Yeah, and I think um, that's probably something that I fall into that bucket or have done in, in, in the past, and that's actually also shown up in hyper-independency as well. Yes. So it's that sort of thing of I'll set my expectations really high but I also know if I don't ask, I can't be rejected, or I and can't, can't be let down. I can't. I can't be let down. Or if yeah. I do, it, if I do it myself, then I don't have to worry about having to have a difficult conversation with someone. Or if I don't ask for help, then they can't so sort of say no because of what, what, whatever it is. So being hyper independent and difficulty in receiving. Mm like that feeling of awkwardness when you actually do receive because sort of like if I, oh, hang on, if I start to receive anything, then maybe I'm being forced to let my guard down just a little bit. Yeah. And, and also, as as, again, that, that lack of trust, like what have you done wrong? Yes. Like, or, or what are you trying mm. to do here? What's what What's going on, you know? Yeah. Or if I let my guard down, is the other shoe going to drop? Or if I do let my guard down, when it's just a matter of time before you disappoint me. Yeah. So, um, and again, you talk about that under the first one, which I think you're saying fear of abandonment. You know, when you can correctly predict and you're saying Mm -hmm. correctly predict that with that lovely dopamine hit, which we all love, then, um, well, if I can predict that I can't trust you and eventually... I don't trust you and you do something that doesn't deserve my trust, like someone says, I'll always be here for you. I'll always be here for you. I'll always be here for you. And then you go, even when I do this, yep, even when I do this, yeah, even when I do this, yep, even when I do this. And then you go, no, that's the line. (laughs) I told you. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, literally set people up for failure, 100%. But that's completely unconscious. We don't, we don't sit there and write our list of ever increasing pushing of the boundaries. They just kind of naturally happen. Mm. Um, But I mean, as a product of number one, fear of abandonment and number two, difficulty trusting others, number three is having a low self-esteem. So that is 
yeah. a really negative self-image. Mm. It might be feeling unworthy. It might be um, really taking criticism or, or almost expecting criticism and a lack of validation. And so this, again, that low self-esteem can come about. Now, I, I really, I should have said this from the outset, but I really, really want to make it clear that this is never about intergenerational bashing. It's not about oh, shaming no, no. our parents. It's not about having any kind of negative connotation to those that came before us mm. because every generation existed in the time and space of that generation and realistically kind of did the best they could with the resources they had available you know like I was thinking just recently I was buttering toast for my child thinking about this going you know my parents didn't have access to podcasts they -hmm. didn't have access to books they didn't have access to Netflix they didn't have access to anything like where and I genuinely was asking if my parents were to learn anything about conscious parenting where and how could they have accessed that and I actually couldn't come up with an answer. Maybe in a in a few books, but that was that would have been well ahead of their time. Yeah, and we, and we, we grew it, up it in a small farming district. I mean, resources mm. were not easily accessible. So it, it was really interesting to look at that and go, where I mean, we put out this podcast and this can help so many people. There's so many other podcasts, there's YouTube channels, there's books, there's TikTok, <laughs> Instagram. Oh, there's, but there's, I think we've said in the past on this, on this podcast, it's not as though that people were not doing these things intentionally or for their own benefit. Mm. It's almost like the light has been turned on. Yeah. Right at this point moment in, in time and everyone in the past and everyone now and everyone in the future will be looking at this point in time going, wow. So like your parents, my parents, they grew up in a model that was modeled by their parents mm-hmm. in a generation and a society that had very different expectations, yeah, very different sort of, I suppose, standards of, of acceptance. And also and, understanding. Like, yes. I mean, there was a period of time when it was understood that if you cuddled or nurtured your children too much, you were damaging them. And so parents, Mm. because they didn't want to damage their children, they wanted to set their children up for success. It's that idea of success and how to support your kids to achieve it was very, very different. And so so, so it came came from the same people that said smoking will help your asthma. mm. And it was prescribed by doctors. Not that these people were being bad about it. Like if a doctor was to do it now with all malicious. Yeah, with all this information, if that'll do it now, then you, it's, it's incredibly, it's, it's incredibly inappropriate and not good. But back then, it was like, well, okay. And like you look back at it, asbestos, right? It was just an absolute miracle product. Yeah. Apart from the, you know, health effects of people Same that use it. Roundup and glyphosate. Now look yeah. at how how toxic that's become for our health. So there's there's a whole lot of different understanding around it so you don't take any of this as parent bashing or any of that but it's a it's a recognition of where you've got those first instances where that first reaction the first interaction that you've got because you got to go back to that point in your body to be able to release it you can't just you can't just release it by going again i love my computer analogies i'm just gonna go into the folder of traumas and just go 
delete, put in the trash if you're a, you're a Mac user. And so you can't do that. You actually have to go find it and process it out. And that's a very important way, not to play apply blame. Well, to, so I would say yes and no. There, are, There is absolutely. So I've got some processes that I can do with people where I don't need to know. We don't need to regress them. We don't need to do absolutely anything at all. But I think what we're speaking about specifically here is really specifically that that wounded inner child, which yes. if, if we're going to take that approach and mm-hmm. we're going to be really thinking about our childhood experiences and reintegrating and reestablishing that close nurturing relationship with that part of ourselves, then absolutely. Well, you we, have to you have, you have to just recognise it. It, it. It, it, hap- it happened yeah. as a child, not as a... 23 year old or a 40 year old or something like that yeah exactly it it could could be earlier okay so yes and and Um, on the low self-esteem thing you know the experiences of criticism or lack of validation sometimes mm. that could just be as simple as mummy mummy look at my painting and mummy's doing the dishes and she's got dinner on the stove and she's got 27,000 things on her mind and she's got other kids to look after and she doesn't turn and look and you feel like your your painting isn't important and you haven't done Mm. a good job and you're bad or those things honestly that's what we're talking about, little t trauma. That's where low self-esteem can really start to come in because there's been that lack of validation. There's been the lack of turning towards and that presence. Mm. Um, one that in my home I became really conscious of was my, uh, in a season of my life, my, I had young kids, my sleep was really disrupted. And almost every single morning when my son, who was the early riser, would wake up first and he would come in and I would look at the clock and my heart would sink and I would just go, oh, I'm not ready to be awake. And one day I just thought, wow, what am I teaching him that the simple presence of him in the mornings makes me respond with, oh, Mm. And I thought I am in that moment every single day, I am influencing what he believes about himself. And so I made a commitment to myself that every single morning, whether I'd had two hours sleep or 10 hours sleep, whether I felt tired, whether I felt ready, whether it was an appropriate time or not, I would be very conscious of my physiology and my tone of voice. And I would say, good morning, baby. Mummy is so happy to see you. Mm-hmm. Even if on the inside I was dying, going, oh, I'm so tired right now. <laughs> I really yeah. want to go back to sleep. And, and I think it's also fair to say that followed by that, you can go, it's so great to see you. Did you have a good sleep? Is everything okay? Yeah. All right. Can mommy go back to sleep? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so we still do that. I just did that on the weekend. I was like, um, my husband was home. He's been working away. And we, we were just like, okay, Good morning, darling. Come have kisses and cuddles. Just letting you know that this is a silent zone. (laughs) We're going to be going back to sleep. If you Mm. would like to stay here, you're welcome to stay and snuggle, but it's not time for chat. We are are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the end, I was like, okay, you out. (laughs) You go and read. You go and play. You go and draw something. We'll be up soon. And And that's not a bad thing, but... It's how are you acknowledging or validating even the mere existence of someone? Are people happy to see you? This is another big one when I say to people, 
how do you greet someone when they come home in your home? Do you just Mm. continue on with what you're doing without even acknowledging their presence or do you stop what you're Mm. doing and turn towards them and validate them and and welcome them? Mm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, people are coming over as well. Do you clean the house? Do you... (laughs) Make sure that as as a as a host that you are not looking in shambles. Or well, this is a really good what, what, point, David, because number is. four is perfectionism. So ah. number four point of a wounded inner child is perfectionism. So that's where we have a really almost compulsive drive to be perfect or to be well presented. And if we couldn't do that, we would actually feel a stress response in our body. So if you were coming to visit me and I couldn't clean my house in time, mm-hmm. well, am I able to sit in this in the presence of that or do I have that compulsion and stress response in that um, state of perfectionism? So it's about avoiding criticism. Yeah. Yeah. It's avoiding judgment. It's gaining approval of people. Um and that is really common, particularly if your worth was tied to achievement in your early life. If you, if mm. in order for you to be praised, you had to have achieved, then that's a really common wounding of a childhood experience that we carry through to adulthood. Mm. Yeah, going back to my earlier example, you know, as Christmas has come and gone, that's what sort of poked into my head that sort of imagine if you invite people over for Christmas and you put no effort into it that's sort of like you don't really want them there but if it's just like a general person's dropping over or you're seeing them it's sort of like yeah it's sort of like I see this magnet on um, fridges sometimes yes my floors might be dirty or the rooms might be messy but I have happy kids yeah so, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 100%. And, you know, um, even on that, it's it comes down to also how we look. And this is an – we recently spoke about this in Rise and Thrive where it's not about the outcome but it's about how you feel in the outcome. So, for example, wearing makeup is not good or bad. Mm. But if wearing makeup is a way for you to express your creativity and express your uniqueness mm-hmm. and it feels empowering for you, then that can be a really, really positive way to meet your needs. But if you wear makeup every day because without it, you feel unworthy, without it, you feel like those negative, you know, low self-esteem starts to come in, the perfectionism controlling people's judgments and opinion of you. Mm those kinds of things, well, then the makeup is no longer an, a healthy expression to meet a need. It's an unhealthy expression to avoid harm or avoid a threat. Mm. And on the avoidance, number five is avoidance of intimacy. So this is really related to what I was just saying about if we have a difficulty forming or maintaining really deep emotionally intimate relationships where we are not masking we can show up warts and all where we don't have Mm. to hide physically behind makeup or Mm. emotionally 
can we have those deeply intimate, vulnerable, raw relationships? I'm going to say depends. And I'm going to throw a little spanner in the works, right? If we're talking about like a relationship of husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, the answer for me quite simply is no, you can't because that's intrinsically linked. Now, if you're going to be talking about friends, then I'm going to say it depends on the person, but absolutely you could because it's like when I, you know, I'm talking to my, my best friend or my best mate or something like that, I don't need to be intimate with them as in when we're sort of talking about the intimacy of, you know, lying on the couch cuddling so I can express myself. I mean, that'd be pretty weird, Bruno, but, you know, um, <laughs> not that it's a problem. So but, you know, like you've assigned meaning to the word <laughs> intimacy. I'm not talking right. about physical intimacy. I'm talking about intimacy in relationship is about having really deep, raw, vulnerable, unmasked, pure expression of self. So would you just sort of say that that just, you know, your version in this case of intimacy is just pure vulnerability? Vulnerability, authenticity, showing up in the fullness of who you are without having to mask, without having to be the perfect version of yourself or the better version of yourself. Well, on that on that basis, then yes, you have to have that to be able to to really connect. Because yeah. otherwise, otherwise, you're just managing. You're, and, you're, and you're managing your the day to day surface level connecting. You're tra- yeah. you're transacting instead of truly connecting. And I think yeah, you can sorry. be a, you, can, you can be a team player and not have to have that intimacy. Yeah, and and this generally comes around. Uh, in response to early life experiences where there's been emotional or physical harm, where we shut off, I really trusted you. And you can see how these are all intrinsically linked anyway. Mm. I really trusted you and you let me down. And so now I'm not going to allow myself to get that close or that deeply related to you again. Or um, another big one with emotional intimacy is when we have really emotionally opened up to someone and they've dropped us. Mm. Or, or even pain. worse, you've got people you've dealt with which either directly or inadvertently on purpose or, you know, subconsciously have weaponized it. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, when, I mean, if you really want to hurt someone at their core and in their fabric, that's what you do. You get them in. And you look at all the, the biggest manipulative thrillers, right? You bring them in really close you hold them close you get them to let everything down and then you just go yeah yeah and it's it's something that is universal and so if that's happened again intentionally or unintentionally it can still happen yeah um and it's a way of payback or controlling even like if someone really wanted to control how you felt they'll just sort of keep you on the the you know that, that arm's length don't go yeah. too far, don't come too close, and you're yeah. in a constant state of flux. Yeah. And so yeah. then what would we learn from that? It brings us to the very next one, which is difficulty expressing emotion. If we learn that through mm. expression it's not safe, either 
someone has physically harmed us. Like I grew up with stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. So it wasn't physically safe for me to express emotion. Mm -hmm. And I know that's a pretty common experience of that era. You know, children should be seen and not heard, um, that kind of stuff. And so if, if we have expressed emotion and either, um, so, and this is linking back to the concept of intimacy. If we have been extremely real and raw without masking, without breaking off the parts of us that are unacceptable or inappropriate or not good enough, um, and we haven't been met with safety and nurturing, then we learn really early that it's not safe for me to express emotions. So that means mm. I'm going to numb out. I'm going to distract myself from even being able to identify emotions is a really common one, especially for males. Um, And so I'm going to pick up a really early life habit of suppressing feelings, numbing out emotions, and not, again, relating or trusting or, or getting close to people or allowing people to have that. The interesting thing about this is this can be a really learned pattern of behavior as well. So if we observe our parents mm-hmm. doing that, then we can learn that not even from our early life experiences of our own, but this is where the intergenerational link can come in because if our parents have difficulty expressing emotion and we just learn that's how you do emotion, then it's not actually necessarily our own personal experience. Mm. It's just how we've learned to do it. But it feels like your own experience. It, yeah. feel, it feels like it's yours even, yeah, the back even though you've just picked you. it up. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But it's a it's a it's a really interesting one. With um, I've lost my train of thought. Actually, we'll come back to that. If it pops up, I'll let you know. <laughs> awesome. So next number one. Seven, next one. Number seven is overreacting to criticism. And this this can also come about with rejection sensitivity. So RSD is this common term that's coming up a lot at the moment. And criticism feels very threatening. So that's where we'll have really strong emotional reactions to criticism or perceived rejection. And that can be linked to early life experiences where there's been really harsh judgment, where there's been disapproval of who we are, how we are, what we are, etc. Like just any part of Interesting. Us that has not been accepted or approved of will come out to play when there's been any perception of rejection or criticism. So I've, I've been... Seeing a little bit there, uh, you know, in someone else's life, I've been sort of hearing about someone dealing with with this, and it's almost like maybe an extreme manifestation of this would be that if you're not validating or agreeing with what I'm saying, you're simply criticizing. Yeah. So it's not even to a point where they're offering bad feedback. It's like, do you agree? No. Yes. Um, and and, and then, yeah, then you can get you get, get that. Yeah, so it's almost like it's it's really it's like a light switch. You're either validating me or you're absolutely against me. It's it's yeah. not it's not this we can we can have a, a we can look at the same thing and have differing views, but we're in a safe space. It's quite literally that sense of if you don't validate or you don't approve of it, 
regardless if you're not even being critical of them, if you simply just can't fully back it, but you go, hey, it doesn't worry me, but no, I I don't agree with it. Yes. Then it's sort of like, you're against me. Well, no, I'm not, I'm not against you. I'm just not, I just, that doesn't feel like that's something for, for me. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And, And this is something that is really, really, really fascinating because there is a really big sense of injustice and a need to be right in order to be safe. So if there is any threat to someone's perspective or viewpoint where they are perceived as being wrong, that feels really threatening to their sense of self or identity because it's if our sense of self is externalised and attached to things outside of us, any threat to our ideas, our perceptions, our viewpoints feels like a direct threat to us. So mm. there's a real need to be sensitive and, and even kind of identify that in someone and kind of be able to communicate then, I understand this must be really hard for you and I support your viewpoint. Mine is just different and that's okay. Mm. You know, I'm Christian and have many friends, many clients who have different um, spiritual frame of reference or belief Mm -hmm. systems to me. And if I went through life going, unless you believe exactly what I believe, then we can't be friends, then that's actually going to be really divisive well, this podcast wouldn't exist. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So being able to exist in our differences and feel safe in our differences and mm. relate still closely, respectfully, with love to and with one another, that is a really, really, really challenging thing for someone who's mm. navigating early life experiences where being wrong was threatening. Yeah. Yeah, for so sure. That- that's a huge one. So people pleasing is the next logical step there. Number eight, people yeah. pleasing behavior. So people pleasing behavior, if if Dave and I were people pleasing, then we would alter our perspectives to meet the other person's needs or opinions and abandon our own just so that we can support or facilitate our friendship or, or our um, relationship. So people-pleasing is about prioritising other people's needs or opinions over your own, Mm. and that is a long-held, I guess, behaviour that originates from just desiring approval, and we can teach people-pleasers. I saw a quote recently, and it was like, adults who are people-pleasers started out as children who were parent-pleasers. Gotcha. That struck me. I was like, yeah, yeah so true. 100%, yeah. If, you, if you were the good kid, if you needed to, if you got attention, connection, validation, approval by pleasing your parents, I remember being a little child going to the beer fridge to get my dad a beer repeatedly. <laughs> I, would, I could crack open a beer at a very young age because it was parent-pleasing. Mm. If my if my daddy was happy with me, then I was safe and I was a good girl. I was worthy of the oxygen I was and, breathing. And look, it was a valuable life skill as well that you learned in the process. <laughs> yeah, as an adult who does not drink beer. <laughs> now, what was the topic just before we had people play? What was the topic before that one? What, what, what did we call that? Rejection. Yeah. 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 So imagine, and I, I won't uh, assign genders to it, but let's just say the people pleaser meets and gets with 
the person who's sensitive to rejection. Yeah. It is the perfect relationship, right? The relationship, but that's a trauma bond. That's, oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. But, but, you, but you think about it, the people pleaser will, will always go, yes, 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 yes. And the other one will be going, I, I feel so validated because I never said no. Now they're both hurting inside. Yes, playing out right? their own patterns of dysfunction. Playing, playing it out until cue an event or cue life or cue something where it's sort of like, oh, I'm starting to heal whatever's going on. And let's just say the people pleaser starts to go, actually, every time I do this, I feel like I'm giving a little bit more away and I'm, I'm resenting you even though I'm pleasing you. Yeah. And then they start to change and the whole relationship breaks down. It's like, but but before was perfect. Yeah, ah, it was exactly. A perfect- so, and you could not have brought that. Everyone's going to think that we planned this and rehearsed this or something because. We don't, we but, don't plan anything. <laughs> number nine is the repetition of destructive patterns. So if we repeat. Beautiful. Repeating the unhealthy patterns of behavior or dysfunctional relationship dynamics that mirrored our childhood relationship dynamics. So Mm. even when we are, are like cognizant to the negative impacts or aware of the negative impacts or know that we deserve more or whatever, until we have brought this to the surface and repaired and restored those inner child dynamics, well, then we're going to continue to play it out because they're coming up Mm. to be healed. And I love that you just talked about that because the... um, We're on the same wavelength. That's what it is. I mean, it's not that far between Tassie and Melbourne. I think that's that's (laughs) probably what it is. But, you know, you, you, you see these trauma-bonded relationships, whether like you mm. gave the example of the person who's sensitive to rejection and criticism and the people-pleaser. Well, the people-pleaser oh. is just a yes-man or yes-woman or not gender assigned. See, I would, I would have gone Mr. Mr. People. No, I would have gone Mr. Sensitive to Rejection meets Mrs. People-Pleaser. If I had to assign genders, that's, yeah, that's, what, wow. that's, what, I, that's what I would have done. Okay, and it's not always that way. As someone who no, works, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, as someone who yeah. works with these relationships on a you know daily, if not weekly basis, um, it can. There is no like one gender that this applies mm. to. But the other is an anxious attachment person will generally match an avoidant attachment person Oof, because the avoidant attached oh, yeah. will start uh, will will mimic and mirror the relational dynamics that the anxious attached person experienced in their early life. And same for the avoidant. You're playing the roles for each other Mm. so that you can bring to the surface the dysfunction that exists so that it can be healed. And so number nine, if you didn't pick it up, was repetition of destructive patterns. Um, When you see the same pattern playing out, Dave and I were just having this conversation before we started recording where you go, oh, my gosh, how did this happen? How is this playing out again? Mm -hmm. And when you can see these destructive patterns that have just kind of been on repeat throughout your life with different characters in the roles, then you know that that is likely stuff that could be helped by navigating this inner child. Let's just put it this way, right? Let's look at the equation, right? You put in some variables, which is other people. You put in a constant, which is, and I'm trying to sound way smarter than I am, but <laughs> just follow me along, right? The variables are the people. The constant is what they're saying. There's normally one other constant in all of that. 
especially what you're just talking about. Ourselves. That, that's, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> So it's sort of like if you're seeing a lot of it, it's because there's something for you to see, for something yes. to change. Exactly, exactly. And so number 10 is feeling lost or empty. So feeling lost mm. or emptiness can stem from general unmet emotional needs. If we have had to cut off parts of ourselves and we are disintegrated and we're moving through our adult lives as this disintegrated version of ourselves, this quite often comes about when people reach a point of crisis in their life. And the most common conversation that I have with people around this is, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what I like. I don't know what my interests are. I don't know how I ended up here. And it really is that feeling of being lost Mm, how did a, I get here? I mean, that's, a, that's yeah, a big one, isn't it? It's huge because where we are right now is the entire culmination of our lifetime of experiences, our mm. lifetime of relationships, of decisions, of choices. So where we are now is our past that has mm. all accumulated to get us to here, but also the future hasn't happened yet. And so if we are currently feeling lost, if we are currently feeling this way, we can make choices that in six months, in three months even, Mm. in three years, our whole life trajectory can change just by getting some insight into what are the choices that we need to change? Where am I? How did I get here? Where do I want to go? And then how do I get there? Who do I have to be to get there Mm. and quite often if where we want to be is happier healthier mentally physically emotionally that requires integration it requires us to do the courageous work to turn towards these parts of us from our past that were that were hurting that were scared that were jealous even um that were whatever they were feeling to turn towards them let them know that they're safe, invite them to reintegrate back into our wholeness Mm. and then the barriers start to break away. So where we're moving towards is happier and healthier. Yeah, because it's it's a funny thing what you're sort of saying there because when you're lost, if you're meant to be there, you're not lost. (laughs) Okay, you're just, you're just where you're supposed to be, you know. Yeah. Google Maps says I need to be here, I'm here, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're lost, it means, oh, even though it feels like crap, it's actually the starting of the healing because you now realize whatever I'm experiencing right now, I'm not meant to be here. So now I'm lost because I don't, if I'm not supposed to be here, where am I supposed to be? Yeah. Well, I don't like where I am, where do I need to go? And as you were saying, it's a reintegrating or going back and looking at all of these patterns that have been patterns on top of patterns that have played out Mm. over time. It's how you choose people you want to be around. It's how you choose to show up. It's how you choose to, to raise, to raise kids. All of these things inadvertently are choices that are now in the subconscious, not in the, not in the conscious. Yeah. And so we now just need to go actively back to look at what was it that I experienced back then and by simply going back and looking at what did I experience back then, if you, you go go back on experiences, 
they'll put a smile on your face. You go through experiences that make it give you goosebumps, you know, Mm -hmm. for how excited and optimistic you were. And then you're going to come across things that just made you feel dread. Yeah. That sort of gut wrenching, your stomach falls out your bottom and it's just like, absolutely, you know, and then you go, okay, can I explore this a bit more? Mm. Because normally those things are the ones that you decide to suppress, to push down or yeah. to disintegrate, chop them out. I don't want it because I don't want to feel this feeling. But as you go back and you go through, you look at those situations, you you know, visualize you holding your child self. When you're going through that, that's the start of reintegrating. And then from there, then suddenly some of these patterns subconsciously get put down and you subconsciously start making different and albeit better decisions. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And look, obviously there's entire therapeutic processes that support and facilitate Mm. this. And so if this is something that you do want to explore, absolutely reach out. But a starting point in the description. <laughs> a starting point is really we've gone through this whole list ten signs. Um, we'll stick the list up as a written mm-hmm. list as well, so that you can see those written. And I would encourage you to audit yourself, audit yourself, audit your life, and actually start. So when I'm working with clients, I reverse engineer it. I go, okay, redundant what you experienced, what you can remember, let's say that doesn't even matter because a lot of people will say, I don't remember much from my early life. Yeah, okay, most people don't actually. Hmm. So let's reverse engineer it. Let's identify which of these signs of a wounded inner child do you actually resonate with? Which can you sit there and go, yeah, as an adult, I can say that that affects me. That's Hmm. the best place to start because you can audit your life right now. And then once you have a bit of an idea about that, Close your eyes. If, if you're a parent, I find this a little bit easier because you've had children who have needed you, who have had their struggles, mm. who have needed you to and help them. by the way, the biggest mirrors in your life you're ever going to experience. Yes, yep. exactly. Um, but turn towards it. Even if you imagine you have no recollection of the specific events that happened, if you just imagine in your mind that little girl or little boy version mm. of you at whatever age Imagine it. Imagine how they were feeling. Imagine what they might have been thinking, what they were confused about, what questions they had, and just meet them. Hmm. Encourage them. Reassure them. You can say it out loud. I really like to get a pen and paper and write the conversation between myself and that that younger version of me. Um, but that process, if you can repeat that, hmm. That will really support the safe reintegration because it means that little version of you knows that you are going to come back for them. They know mm. that you're, you've got their back, that you're there for them. Yeah, absolutely. And another another tip is if you have some people around you that you feel safe around, get this list out that we've just spoken about and mm. just ask them, is there any of these that you think? Yes, that you see um, in me. Yes, and, so Yeah, and, you know, this is where we'll be a little bit analytical about it. Don't just take one person as the be-all and end-all, uh, but let's just say you, you spoke to three people about it. Mm-hmm. You might be able to get a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a picture. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but even if it's just one person, it's a, it's an, it's an absolute blessing. But again, but if you had a fear of opening up, that's good luck trying to get that. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. But try it. That, that in itself could be the first part of, especially for me, if it was me starting this right now, the hardest thing for me would be to actually take that list and put it in front of someone and go, do I display any of those? Yeah. I couldn't. Especially a romantic partner because they're the ones who see the realest and rawest mm. version of you. They see the ugly parts. Trust yeah. me. I um, have ugly uh, parts still in me and my husband and I have conversations about being each other's mirror mm. and that is so hard. It's so, so hard but also the greatest gift because when you can – acknowledge that you are your partner and lover's mirror and learn and this is not something that is inherently natural to anyone but you can learn how to hold one another and have each other's backs through that um Mm. it's a constant journey of learning but the biggest thing is having a relational partner who is willing to journey that with you because if your relationship has been built off the back of dysfunction or playing out those old um, trauma dynamics or family dynamics, well, then as you start to learn and grow, you're going to have to reassess that. Hmm. So we've, I think we've done episodes where we've spoken about that. Absolutely. Go check out. The, it's, it's starting to feel a bit more like a catalogue yeah. of episodes we've got <laughs> now. We're now up to 37. So yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. But that's this has been really quite cool. I've liked um, having like the actual ten. Yeah, and gone yeah. back to it. Having some structure and um, they, they link together so perfectly, mm, so beautifully. So that's been awesome. It's been a great episode. I think we're pretty much done, Ash. Anything else? Absolutely. Let us know in the comments where you want us to take these conversations, guys. We'd love to hear from you. And don't don't be afraid to hit the subscribe button. If you liked it, tickle the like button or just press it. I mean, it's up to you. We don't judge here at all. Um, And we'll catch you next week. Awesome. Bye-bye. Bye.